0: Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. Today is May 25th, 2015. This podcast series is a product of the Committee on International Environmental Law of the American branch of the International Law Association. My name is Mayanna Dillinger. I'll assume a position as Associate Professor of Law for the University of South Dakota School of Law starting in August of 2015. I research and write on issues of national and international environmental law, and how these issues intersect with various business aspects. Today, I have the great honor of hosting Philip Sutherland, a professor at the Stellenbosch University Faculty of Law in South Africa. Professor Sutherland was one of 13 experts contributing to the recent formulation of the Oslo Principles on Global Climate Change Obligations. He will be adding his insight to the previous comments by Professor Girard on the Principles. Professor Sutherland teaches and researches in the areas of corporate, competition and financial services law. He has published more than 35 articles and chapters in books in these fields. His main focus is currently the broader societal impacts of business activities. Professor Sutherland does extensive consulting and opinion work in the area of business law. He's been a member of the Financial Services Board the Actuarial Governance Board and the Governance Committee of the Center for Corporate Governance at the University of Stellenbosch Business School for many years. Professor Sutherland, welcome. Thank you very much.
1: It's uh, very nice to talk to you.
0: Could you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, why you decided to draft the Oslo Principles?
1: So one of our difficulties We are lawyers and uh, we are confronted by this problem of climate change. We want to do something about it, but we are also deeply frustrated because we can see that the best way to deal with the problem of climate change would be for states to agree to um, greenhouse gas uh, reductions, but uh, they are finding it very difficult to come to any sort of concrete agreement that could address the problem. So we as a group of lawyers from various legal backgrounds came together to investigate various areas of law to determine whether there aren't already uh, some obligations upon parties who emit uh, greenhouse gases. So the idea is that that should um, um, play some role uh, to address this problem, even if we don't get a proper agreement. Secondly, to feed into that whole process of... Um, an, um, um, a Statewide agreement on greenhouse gas emission reductions. So, um, we're not trying to do the work of states. Of course, we can't. We can't actually say we can't invent new obligations, but we're trying to look at the law and find some concrete obligations there uh, that could be imposed on on on, on greenhouse gas emitters.
0: Great. The principles talk uh, something about existing legal mandates already. One of the things that the principles mention is the fact that uh, there are already sources uh, uh, on the books, so to speak, that require states and companies to fulfill the principles uh, that derive from, among other things, international human rights law environmental law and torts law. So that's the underlying principles you were just referring to uh, I presume. Um, could you elaborate on that and could you also elaborate a bit on the corporate responsibility and the corporate role in this context?
1: One of the people who started this group uh, is a Dutch uh, lawyer by the name of Job Speer and he's actually t- traditionally a tort lawyer. And he came up with this idea a while ago that you know, if the law does anything useful, um, it can't stand back from a problem like climate change, but only address sort of motor vehicle accidents and uh, and and medical negligence. So his idea was that, of course, we have many sources of law that, well, in the human rights field, that protect various human rights that would be breached um, by um, you know by the consequences of climate change. Um, international obligations, uh, environmental law obligations, both in um, bills of rights of different countries, but also more specific obligations, and and then these sort of what we would call private law obligations. So uh, um, the normal tort law, uh, you know, um, you have a duty to take steps to prevent harm um, uh, to others. So one of the things that we discovered is because this is one of the problems with lawyers we all work in different um silos so um when you look at these various different fields you often find that you you can't really construct um um, obligations for climate change purposes from any one of them but our idea was also to sort of pull them together and then say you know what, what do we have if we look at all of this together um so um, that was our idea to bring lawyers from different areas to, together to talk about how their fields interact. So I think one of the interesting things for me is also that uh, one does not only see what the, all these legal areas can do for climate change, but also how a big problem like climate change can um, affect the way people think about the law in various different areas of law. Uh, your, your, your second part was about um, enterprises and um, um, companies or corporations and their their um, um, duties. Um, now we we also started off with the aim of really looking more deeply into the obligations that one could impose on enterprises uh, when it comes to greenhouse gas uh, emission reductions. Um, and. Uh, by using the same tools but expanding it a little bit, because of course, when you deal with enterprises, the the, the, the field of sort of non international law that you could use would be much better. So, you could use things like corporate governance law, um, um, uh, the fiduciary duties of directors, you know, all, all, all kinds of aspects of business law. But um, when you go through the principles, you will see that there's actually ultimately not as much on enterprises as, the, uh, as, as, as there is on states. And I think we got into various difficulties when it comes to obligations uh, imposed on enterprise. So I think in the end, our focus is a little bit on states. And we decided we'd deal in a more detailed way with enterprises in a further project. So um, the, at, at the point, when you look at the principles, I think, um, if one has to be honest, the the, the 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 principles set out on the duties of obligations appear to be somewhat incomplete, and they are. So, we still want to elaborate on that using the same same methodology. But, um, you know, we were a good big group of people, and we had some profound disagreements. And I think those disagreements, especially when it comes to enterprise, were a little bit difficult to harmonize into more concrete principles in the same way that we did with states.
0: Sure, and when you get a lot of experts together like this, you're right, uh, there will be many opinions about um, the issue. How do you, though, personally see uh, the issue of potential law enforcement uh, to the extent that that will be necessary? Do you think that any damages claims should be addressed by injunctions or uh, monetary uh, uh, claims, and do you think there might be a difference in this context in the short term and in the long term?
1: Yeah, so I, I think this is the the the... the, the inherent difficulty that we were faced with in some ways it is a little bit easier if you if you follow this methodology to come up with obligations for states but uh, it would be much more difficult to enforce them uh, you know to get states before courts especially before courts in other jurisdictions it's, you know that I think is a bit of a pipe dream so you can, you can easily come up with obligations on states, but you are going to find it difficult to enforce them. With enterprises, you have, you have exactly the opposite problem. So there, if you could really get something together, it would be much easier to get them before courts to enforce obligations against them. But it's much more difficult to come up with some sort of concrete obligation that you can say this is what you would expect of enterprises. Simply to start off, because they take on so many different forms. You know, states, even though they differ quite a bit, are still in many respects homogenous. But enterprises are really very, very different. The way in which they contribute to um, um, uh, climate change is very different. So, uh, I I I think those are the issues we still have to deal with. When when, when we started with this project, on the first day. We spoke about the idea, do we all agree that there are obligations on states and enterprises? Um, and we were in New York, and they said, you know, yes. Um, after a very short while, there was agreement on that, and I, I, I was looking forward to two days of sightseeing in New York. But then I discovered that the real goal was actually to give the, some concrete content, and that's where you really struggle um, with with enterprises. Yeah. So it, that's, mm-hmm. that, that, I think...
0: Yeah, I was going to say that if you issue an injunction against uh, some companies in this context, you'd um, effectively drive them out of business, right?
1: Well, um, you see, uh, and uh, that was the second part of your question. And I think um, um, that, that was also, a, 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 you, you have your finger on the problem. I mean, that's one of the issues that we also had considerable discussions on is this whole issue of, you know, if you can get enterprises and even states before courts, what, what would be the ideal remedy? So, the first idea was, or, you know, this whole discussion of damages versus uh, injunction, um, and we, we had some very um, difficult discussions of this. You know, starting firstly with, you know, what what is the purpose of what would be the purpose of claiming damages in this context? Would it fulfil any valuable function? And and I think one of the difficulties that we came up with is that. Um, determining something like damages in this context is very difficult. Um, um, you know, just finding a link between a particular emitter and a particular loss is very difficult because, you know, uh, as you know, with, with with climate change, the emissions go up into the atmosphere, and it's very difficult to link them up in any specific way. Um, and also, I think you mentioned the difference between the short and the long terms. It's, it's, I also find that very interesting. You know that. If we really get to the point where where serious losses from climate change start to materialise, I think you know damages will simply start interfering with the whole process of um, dealing with 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 you know adapting to the effects of climate change. So, in the long term, especially, I think the majority of our panel was of the view that you know damages would would in many cases be more harmful than good Um, so our focus so in the end what we did is we said okay some of us may be in favor of of it others may not but we all agree that certainly injunction could be a very powerful remedy and I think um, you you, when you talk about enterprise you you know your your views that injunctions would would in many cases simply mean that uh, an enterprise could no longer do business but of course I think the question is how how do you frame the injunction? what do you ask of enterprise what 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 should they do um, and, and I think that would in in many ways be the real um, that's where, where creativity is going to be required so and I think if you want the ear of a court that's also something that we, that one would have to think very carefully about is what would be the sort of injunction that you would ask for i mean simply asking a, um, a, 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 a electricity generating um Firm or an oil company to close down, I think, would be um, an unreal. would be unrealistic as an expectation from a court. And I, I, I think trying something like that, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, would be quite dramatic, but I don't think it would be very effective.
0: Not, but not right now. There could be many
1: other, you know, but there certainly could be other injunctions that 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 uh, other types of injunctions, you know, uh, that one could use effectively. Um, for instance, requiring our firms to start taking steps to make certain types of reduc- uh, reductions. Um, so, certainly, in that, there, there I think injunction, injunctions could be useful.
0: Right, and implementing better and better technologies, and then, like you said, maybe revisiting this via other protocols or legal instruments later on. Um, Professor Sutherland, uh, the principles also mentioned the ideal um, that action should be taken without regard to cost. Uh, but also that all states and companies must reduce their uh, greenhouse gas emissions if they can do so without relevant additional cost. So I suppose that's a little bit of the dichotomy that you mentioned, that maybe among the uh, 13 of you that developed the principles, there's uh, still work to be done. Or how do you otherwise these uh, statements that seem to be conflicting on their face, and how do you see these issues relating to the notion, too, of common uh, but differentiated responsibilities?
1: Yes. So... The issue of, of of discounting of the cost of taking measures uh, um, um, it, uh, in the, in the principles it features um, on on various occasions and I think there's on the face of it there may be some con- there, it, it, w- there may be some conflict between them but I don't think there really is so the, the the first thing is our point of departure and also one of the important foundations of the principles. Is the precautionary principle so there when when we discuss our understanding of the precautionary principle um, we we, we say um, that uh, the measures required by the precautionary principle should be adopted without regard to cost but then we have this qualification saying unless the cost is completely disproportionate so I think we actually put it in oddly enough not uh, to show that we are very strict but rather to show that perhaps there could be some exceptions and I think um, the idea um, here is that of course in developing the obligations you have to take cost into consideration if you just take a normal thought approach you know certainly uh, cost would be one of the factors that you would take into account when you determine uh, obligations when you determine whether people should take steps to prevent harm But I think um, the the cost issue, what we really try to say when it comes to cost, we try to make two very important points. The first point is that cost cannot be, uh, uh, or high cost, can't be uh, determinative. So the mere fact that it's going to cost a lot cannot by itself be an excuse. So that, I think, would be the first point. And um, I, I mean, the reason for that is quite obvious, I mean, to to achieve what has to be achieved here is going to take um, um, a considerable cost. So, so one has to say, look, there's a point where what you know, the mere fact it's going to cost you a lot cannot be an excuse. And um, I, I, I think uh, this, the second issue is um, there's a difference between taking cost into account in t- when you determine the principle and taking cost into account once you've said this is your obligation. So, so I, I think um, we, we, we've in various situations tried to address this issue of cost to prevent it from being an excuse once you have an obligation.
0: Professor Gerard uh, also mentioned the fact that it's not only in his opinion at least a matter of costs, but also of taking the benefits into account in that calculation. Do you personally agree with that statement?
1: Yes, and, 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 and I think that... Um, that's one of our points is, which at first I thought was startling and I think that was one of uh, Professor Gerard's points and it, it, it's sort of slightly counterintuitive at first but is this one obligation that we put in here that you have to take all, one of your obligations is to take all steps that um, uh, would involve reducing your emissions without relevant additional cost. Um, and it sort of sounds ridiculous uh, but there is a lot that can be done in this way simply by uh, you know by being more efficient um, you can reduce your your your, your um, carbon emissions and at the same time save costs so um of course there, there, there are some some, some boundaries to this. Um, um, you know, one of the things we discussed is, uh, and, and of course you can imagine in these discussions, there were often also sort of typical developed world, developing world perspective clashes. And one of them was, for instance, I mean, um, one of the things that people from the developed world would say is, well, so what people should do is they shouldn't drive old cars because they are inefficient and they actually cost you more, but of course, the problem is that that often is just not possible. You know, I mean, everybody would 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 actually like to drive a more efficient car, but it's not within their powers necessarily to do that because it takes a certain initial outlay that's not possible. So for that reason, we then also distinguished a further obligation which says, so what you have to do is there's also an obligation on you to invest in technologies which will reduce your emissions where you will ultimately recover the investment. But in that case we made some specific exclusions for least developed countries because of the problems that they may encounter in in actually just you know doing initial investments that could lead to future reductions in costs.
0: So interesting. So you mentioned two um, ends of the spectrum. It sounds like the least developed nations, uh, and then the developed uh, nations. So do you see it as being sort of either or? That, in other words, that the developing nations should have uh, approximately the same responsibility as the already developed nations, or, or how do you, in other words, see uh, the common, the CBDR principle?
1: Yeah. So um, I think the most important. Uh, uh, um, if you want to make this work, the most important issue is uh, because we, we can't negotiate a sophisticated solution, we have to find a relatively simple formula, You know, as one would in a, if you were developing the common law in the courts. So you have to find a relatively simple formula that accommodates as many as possible of the factors that you want to discount, um, but you also have to understand right at the outset that if you do the principles in the way that we have, like, you know you can't have too many qualifications and too many uh, um, um, sub 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 rules so so what we did is um, we distinguished basically the least developed nations we we specifically provide for them, and um, there are various in various places in the principles we we we, we have special exclusions or special provisions to accommodate then, but then um, at first glance, it sort of appears as if we ignore the difference between developed and developing outside of least developed countries. but I think what, what we decided to do is to use the concept of um, uh, per capita emissions as a proxy for development.
0: Can you talk about that a little bit more? what does that mean
1: so 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 what so if you look at Per capita carbon um, or greenhouse gas emissions, then generally it would reflect two things. It would reflect the higher, uh, the, the richer nations would have higher per capita emissions, and the nations who historically are the greatest emitters would per capita have higher emissions. So, although of course China is now the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases and India is not far behind. The moment you divide it through populations, they are actually uh, per capita still um, above what is required to 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 avoid um, uh, serious um, environmental problems. But they are not, you know, the, the 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 richer nations are generally per capita the higher the higher emitters. So we decided to use that as a concept and. There are certainly some anomalies. Uh, One one, one can't hide that. And in fact, my own country is a very big anomaly. Um, um, We are, for instance, per capita, a very high emitter, um, higher than, for instance, the United Kingdom, although, of course, we are very much a developing nation.
0: And by your country, I should say to the listeners, that's South Africa.
1: That's correct. And and, um, so so, um, one can talk a little bit about that because I think it is in some ways um, interesting is of course, the reason for it is because we are the most unequal nation in the world, and we have vast coal reserves. So, um, per capita, we are a huge emitter. And imposing these sorts of obligations of reducing carbon emissions would, for a country like South Africa, be, be a very complex matter, um, because there are also very, very poor people, people who really um, um, are, um, you know, struggle um, um, very badly. So. So it's not a perfect—it's not a perfect tool for distinguishing the different kinds of countries that you want to distinguish. But it's simple; it is more or less equi- uh, equitable I- I- if you if you generalise. And I think it also uh, speaks directly to the issue that you want to deal with, namely emissions. And I think the equitable element that's very important here, which for me um, is, is, is fundamentally important, is. When you talk about reduction uh, emissions, in a sense, I think there's also a flip side to the coin. And that is, uh, you, you you, you, in some ways give different nations, different enterprises the right to still emit. So it's, it's, it, the, the coin has two sides. And for me, it's fundamentally important that whatever we can still emit must be divided up fairly. And I think it's very difficult to argue that Dividing it by saying that every person has the same sort of a right to emit, uh, um, 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 uh, uh, up to the limit that we can emit without avoiding, uh, or in order to avoid catastrophe. I think there must be something inherently fair in that.
0: And that ties into something that actually is mentioned in the principles themselves, uh, which state that avoiding severe global, global catastrophe is a moral and legal imperative. Can you talk a little bit about how, what you mean by that or how you see that personally and how you think that might relate to corporate um, social responsibility?
1: Yeah, so our principles has quite a long introduction, a preamble, um, that was written by um, a, a very famous and very great Australian judge called Judge Kirby, who um, is famous in Australia for being the judge who's written the most dissenting judgments in a rather conservative environment so he's a very interesting person and he wrote this who is mostly responsible for writing this preamble and the, the, the sentence that he referred to comes from the preamble so it's not one of our principles but it certainly sets up how we think about uh, how we think about climate change obligations um, so um, the, the, the idea, firstly, is that we're trying to discover real legal obligations. So it's not just moral aspects, but, of course, uh, the idea is that there's there's a strong morality behind it, and there, there must be an important interaction between them. And I think, from from my own perspective, as 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 as, as somebody who's interested in corporate uh, issues, is, I, I um Um, In most places in the world now, there's there's quite a complex interaction between what would be hard law, soft law, moral issues. And it it becomes clear to me that whenever we have to deal with some major um, global problem, these um, divisions um, um, uh, become even more um, um, sort of um, uh, clouded. So, and, 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 and I think uh, the issue of climate change would be a very good example of that. So I, I, I know in the US you are slightly exceptional when it comes to this, but I mean, most places in the world, if, if they deal with corporations, would now have some sort of corporate governance code that is not really law, but people have to comply with it. It changes all the time on the basis of some morality and that then in some ways feed into law and exactly where that occurs is not always very sharp but um, um, the fact that there is some interaction between it is actually uh, I think fundamentally important and, uh, and in my view a positive development if you really want to see the law as a tool that can be used to um, um, address some of the major issues that confront the world.
0: But at the same time, though, the principles also frequently, I've noticed, make use of such phrases as the shortest time feasible, undue hardship, uh, best efforts, and other very open-ended terms. And um, at least here in the United States, that might present a legal uh, problem. Um, Do you think that using such words are an advantage for the reasons you talked about? Or do you think this could be problematic seen from sort of a more or less less hard law point of view, enforcement point of view?
1: i mm. i think you know it's it's um one one of the things that 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 we had to really grapple with was you really want to impose or to say that there are obligations that are strict enough uh so that compliance with them could address the problem which as uh, as the principal state is really that we want to avoid um uh, uh global temperatures increasing by more than 2 degrees now um, on the other hand, it, there has to be a, an element of fence. If it's not there, the the, any obligation that you impose would simply not work, especially if you deal with it in the sort of sphere that we do here where you know you don't have a police force that can really enforce it. So, So what we try to do is we try to first find certain basic obligations and we try to express them in the clearest possible terms. So for instance, this idea that countries that produce emissions, uh, per capita emissions that are above the annual emissions that could be allowed to avoid us going beyond the two degree limit, they must simply reduce it. And there you will see there are very few qualifications to that, um, almost none. Um, And we try to set them out in very clear terms And leave very little room for exactly what you're referring to now the sort of uh, you know vague terms the the open-ended sort of um, 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 obligations but of course there are many other types of obligations and in some of those cases one simply couldn't avoid that Um, and again to keep the principles relatively simple I think you, you you had to give some space for for development of them in particular factual situations um, and um, and you have had to give space for, 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 for all the difficult practical issues that could arise but it it certainly is it, it certainly un, un, would undermine and i agree with you i mean I think you're absolutely right it would undermine the the, 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 the real certainty that you want to achieve but it, it is also unavoidable um, yes yeah
0: I see That's, and, go ahead, sorry,
1: and as you can imagine, also i mean this is typically lawyers, I mean each one of these have been negotiated, you know uh, you, you know we started off with one term and ended off on the way through ten others, ended up with what we had to really sort of express the level of strictness that we wanted to uh, convey, but it it's not it's not it certainly is not an exact science.
0: And again, I can imagine that might have been difficult with uh, an expert group that consisted of uh, 13 experts, uh, including yourself, uh, from different countries. In that connection, I noticed that three of those 13 experts were from less developed nations only, Um, so not a huge majority, not even a majority at all, in fact. Do you think that that means that there was not much support by emerging economies, or how come, if you can speak to this a little bit, uh, how come so many of those experts were from developed nations?
1: All right, so um, the, the, uh, um, to start off, I think that the it's quite important to recognize that, of course, we weren't nominated by our country, so it's it's really just a group of people that, you know, it's a, sort of an academic network where you try and find people in different countries. And, of course, um, it's still the case that the the, the network, academic networks that you ha- would have between developed countries would be stronger than with developing countries. I um I, I think there were actually four of us from 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 developing nations. So uh India, South Africa, um uh China and Brazil was represented there. I think you may have missed the uh, judge from Brazil. Maybe. But but still, I mean but 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 still it it, it, it is still um
0: I think I was being uh, diplomatic and not including China in, in that group, but be that as okay. it may, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs>
1: Yes, uh, of course. That's another point that uh, I mean. When we were speaking about developing nations earlier on, you know, uh, that, that 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 is a very interesting. Thing is I mean that th- these concepts are also changing all the time. But um, um, uh, that 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 certainly was was one of one of the concerns. And and um, I I don't think um, we've we've necessarily um, um, addressed this um, as well, well as one. Could if you had to do it perfectly, but again, you know, it it, 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 it was an organic process. That right. percolated rather than. So you know, I, I think it started off as a very small group of 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 more or less uh, European and, and 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 US lawyers, and then they started to broaden it and brought in different people. But we I still a very very interesting
0: composition. Or, so you do see, though, that there would be support by uh, developing nations to these principles too.
1: I would certainly hope so, I would certainly hope so and um one of the things that i've i found very very interesting and and, and i mean you would know that i mean South Africa is a sort of a one foot in both worlds as well so for me a, 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 much of that was also interesting um is that some of the participants from developing countries were actually much more forceful in their approach to Obligations and they were much more, they, they were much less prepared to accept exceptions and qualifications. And uh, one of the things that I took out of this was that I, 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 I sometimes think developing na- or developed nations underestimate the willingness of developing nations to contribute if they are not, and especially in the situation where they are not the only ones to do it. And to make actually Sacrifices that, comparably, I think would be very difficult for developed nations to make.
0: I see. Interesting. What are your views on the upcoming Paris UNFCCC negotiations? Um, Do you think there's still hope for a global, legally binding solution?
1: I I think if one works in this field and you and you want to survive, you have to have hope over experience. But. in a sense, I, I, I also think it depends a little bit on where we are by the end of this year in terms of uh, you know things in the world, especially economic. It's changed so quickly, but uh, I'm I'm I, I hope for something, but I'm not. I, I would not at all be surprised if it if it again doesn't uh, um, um, deliver much. Um,
0: Sorry. Mm-hmm. so you're cautiously pessimistic in this context <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> do you personally feel though that there is some hope maybe not within the UNFCCC regime but elsewhere for mitigating the climate change problem or do you think it's we're just doomed in that respect so to speak
1: um, i i i uh, i i i i i'm yeah i i i'm by nature an optimist but it's very difficult to be optimistic when you deal with uh, With with the issues that we are dealing with with here Um, sometimes things happen that sort of give me some hope um, and then other times they are dashed very badly Um, uh, i'll mention one small example Um, in a in a in a a, um, economically divided nation like south africa the government for instance is very keen to impose a carbon tax and i can imagine that there could be other countries that could be in a similar position because It's the richer people who emit, and um, uh, it would be a very good excuse for increasing taxes. So you get those sorts of positive things. But on the other hand, uh, in a country like our own, I mean, many things also happen every day, which seems to just confirm that um, even if we tried, we we, we are unable to really address the problem. And I think there are many other nations who could try but are unwilling to do so.
0: Yeah, it's a so-called wicked problem, isn't it? In fact, even a super wicked problem. But let's hope that something will be done in time. This was an interview of Professor Philip Sutherland of the Department of Mercantile Law at the University of Stellenbosch. Professor Sutherland, thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. Our podcast series is available on iTunes.